So let's go ahead and stand, and we're going to open up to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Okay. John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I don't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you, just, what you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we worship must be in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is a Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Ben. Father, we are so thankful for the scriptures. This particular story in John chapter 4 means so much. To see the way that you interact, not just on a general basis with nations like Israel or groups like the church, but rather to see you interact one-on-one with men and women and the way that you talk to them and interact. Father, I pray that we would be able to look at this woman at the well at Sychar, a Samaritan, and that we would be able to see ourselves at that well at noon, interacting with you in the places we find ourselves. For many of us, like this woman, feel as maybe she did in the margins, ostracized from society, sitting at the well at noon. And I pray this morning that we who are aware of those who may feel distant would be a pursuing type of people that go beyond the borders of our comfort zones. But I also pray for the men and women who are here this morning, some of which are living with secrets, secret hurts and pains, places where they feel ostracized from the rest of us. And Father, I pray that we would see healing happen in hearts this morning, that you would pursue after the woman at the well, that you would come after each of us in the places we find ourselves. So Father, your word is holy, it's sacred, We're glad to have it read over us and to us. We do this as a community. We pray now that you would uh, continue to infuse this space with your power, your clarity, and your spirit. Speak to us now, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, we said together, amen, amen, amen. You can 
have a seat, unless you want to stand the whole time. One goal of a good preacher is uh, if he can get you to sit down and then stand up during a sermon, it means you're doing good. <laughs> so if you want to stand up and give me a good swat, I'm all right with that. Um, John chapter 4, uh, it makes me want to start with a question for each of us this morning. Have you ever had an experience, the awkward and, and sometimes painful experience of being in an environment where you didn't feel like you fit in? Um, and we probably all experienced that to some degree. Um, and there's probably a variety of environments where that can take place. Maybe you started a new job or attending a new church. That can be uh, an awkward situation. Um, sometimes it's just social circles that you don't feel like you're really fitting into. Um, there's a variety of things that keep us on the outside of, of circles. Maybe it's your race, your gender, your socioeconomic your background, the way you were raised, the family you came from. There are all kinds of factors that make us different from each other. And there are times when you end up in an environment where you feel like you are the other. And most of us try to create uh, our lives in a way that we never have to be in a, an uncomfortable situation where we are the other, that we don't fit in. Um, some of you can relate to that more than others. My background was, for at least my childhood, was what I would call a shallow roots or very um, seldom rootedness in that I moved a lot as a kid. So in elementary school, elementary school, I switched schools six times in elementary school. I went to two different junior highs and three different high schools. So I'm like Sam Smith. I'm good at goodbyes. I, I can say goodbye, y'all. Like, I know how to leave. I don't know how to stay. Um, but I'm acquainted with the awkward feeling of being new, not knowing the rules of the social environment, and having to enter in and feel like the other, feel like the one who's different. And uh, in Jesus' day in the first century, um, there was a lot of things going on in that environment that Jesus lived in that caused company lines to be drawn, lines of delineation that separated one from another. There was intense and thick racism in Jesus' day. There was um, intense classism, sexism, elitism, um, religion and race and gender all provided boundaries which you could sort of be in or out. It was their own version of the Hindu caste system. And so in Jesus' day, think of the environment as um, constantly there was this feeling of tension in the air. If you weren't wearing the right clothes, you weren't the right race, you weren't uh, the right gender, you could easily feel on the outside looking in. And for that, Jesus um, speaks to us on how to interact with the other. Um, in Jesus' day, there was a group of people called the Samaritans. How many are familiar with the Samaritans? So the Samaritan story is one that is fascinating because they weren't, um, they were hated by the Jews because of this fact. They reminded the Jews of a painful time in their history. In about 727 BC, the Assyrians, uh, whose capital was Nineveh, so if you've read the book of Jonah, you know that they were a cruel people, in about 727 B.C., the Assyrians invaded Israel and took the ten northern tribes captive. And those ten northern tribes of the twelve tribes of Israel were assimilated into Assyria. And what ends up happening is the Assyrian men intermarry with Jewish women and they have children. And those children aren't Jewish or Assyrian, they are half-breeds. And they be later became a group called the Samaritans. And they were hated for the reason that they reminded the Jews of a very dark time in their history. What well, would be the equivalent of uh, in the six, 17th and 18th century in the United States, uh, uh, a black slave woman giving birth to a child that she was impregnated by her white slave owner. And that child born was neither black nor white, but a half-breed. And in the day, if you do any research, you know that this was a common phenomenon during that very dark time in our, our country's history, that there was a lot of mixed children that were neither accepted by their black 
family nor their white family because they reminded either side, the whites and the black, of the other. And so the woman to whom Jesus interacts with, the place to where Jesus goes is a place where the other exists. And Jesus shows how to step into those kinds of environments. And Jesus has something to say to marginalized people groups as he comes into Samaria. Um, And he comes to one of perhaps the most ostracized persons in Jewish society. This woman had her race against her. She had her gender against her. And she had her past against her. As Ben was reading, you find out about this woman that she had been married multiple times. We find out about this woman that she was Samaritan and she was a hated race in Israel at that time. She's also a woman in a very sexist, patriarchal society where women take a very low place. And Jesus comes to this woman and teaches us something about how to treat the other. Now this woman, having, not been, mar- had been, having been married multiple times, I think there's a lot of assumptions that we make about her that I think aren't fair. It's not the, the equivalent of the, a 21st century world. The first century world was very different. And uh, I read an article, sort of a, a blog, uh, monologue sort of, of writing by a pastor um, from Portland named Rick McKinley, pastor of Imago Day in, in Portland. And uh, he has written something that I thought was worth us uh, taking a listen to um, that explains the plight of this woman in first century lenses. So I've asked Alyssa Taylor if she would come and read that for us to help us get kind of uh, an idea. So welcome, Alyssa, as she comes to read. The sun, hot and bright, breaks through the window onto his back. Gray hairs curl on his shoulders and turn silver in the first strokes. He wakes, lurching to sit up, grabs his sandals and tunic, cursing the hour. I say nothing as he dresses, wastes no powerless words. Shalom, I whisper as he leaves. I wasn't always this way, and you knew that. Somehow you knew knew that my first marriage was to a man three times my age. I was a girl of 15. Despite my pleading, my father arranged it. Mother met my protests with stern rebuke. I should not have complained. After all, he was kind to me. And later, I realized father had taken pains to ensure I would be cared for by a good man. I did not love him. I did my duty as a wife well, but my heart could never meet his. When he died, I was still a girl. According to custom, his brother redeemed me as his own. My youth was still intact. My beauty had not yet faded, which was a curse to his other wife. He desired me and she knew this. When he left to care for the flock, she took her revenge, reduced me to a servant girl, made me as low as she could. This is when I learned to use the only resources I had, my youth and beauty. My body and his desire became my upper hand, and yet it was not enough. She rained down in wrath until even she, he wished for only peace and issued me a certificate of divorce. You knew this too. When you spoke to me, I knew you knew. Father used to say that Yahweh had blessed me with the face of an angel. But angels were not considered dogs and half-breeds as our people were. I knew this from the time I would play with the other girls and boys. And the names we would be called. Look at the little dogs, they would say. Pretty mongrels, they would call us. And when I was sent away from my, mother's, my husband's brother's house, I had no option to pray for husband. By this time, his wife had spread every vile rumor she could about me throughout the region of Samaria. The women were afraid of me, jealously careful. The men were not interested in legal marriage, but all too eager for a sexual one. 
somehow I found another husband and somehow again found myself despised. My youth faded, as did my beauty. My reputation grew wide and far. My last husband was a good man, but already dying when he took me in. His estate, though meager, was already promised to his three sons, never to a wife. But his kindness was a small respite for my shame. None of this shocked you. You didn't recoil in my presence or look at me as an easy prize to be bedded. That morning, after that man in my bed awoke and left, the sun had risen high as he scuttled through the streets. I knew he would never run a, ruin his name by running off with me. Despite his promises, I would never be worth that much risk. You saw that in my eyes. I bathed my face and body, tied my graying hair off my neck. My water jar sat near the door, a daily reminder that I was without friend, without husband, without a good name, without hope. I make daily trips to draw water at the hottest part of the day when I know I'll be alone. I cannot bear the other women's stares, their whispers, or worse, they're acting as if I don't even exist. I am alone there. You, but I don't mind being alone anymore. You knew I would be there. But why did you even come? You didn't have to go through Samaria. It wasn't on the way to where you were going. You were looking for something, someone, something your father was seeking. What was it? I could tell you were a Jew, even from a distance, that you were not a very good Jew, and I would know. They don't talk to Samaritans, especially the women. Well, when they do, it's only in the dark places when they are full of drink. But you spoke to me for all to see, asked me for water, spoke nonsense of a secret water that meant a person could never thirst again. I called your bluff. Give me this water, I told you. Then I won't have to make this journey in the heat of the day. I thought you would leave, but you didn't. I thought you seemed a bit crazy, yet your eyes were the clearest and kindest I had ever seen. And it was like I knew them. It was like you were lonely too, homesick almost. Did you miss the father you spoke of as I missed mine? My father, the only man with whom I'd been safe, undesired. My childhood joy seemed like a far-off lie. It was a little much, I must admit, when you talked about your father and God as though they were the same. I was ready to leave you then, you know. Of course you know. My water jug was full, and so was my patience for religious riddles. And that's when you said, go, call your husband. I hate that word. Its syllables reverberate through my soul. I don't even remember what I said because you pulled back the curtain on my soul so quickly I stumbled in mind and body. Instantly, I knew you knew everything. My past, my shame, my loss, and my sin. You knew with whom I had woke that very morning. How did you know? Had you spoken to the other women? I tried to change the subject. Which religion is the right religion, ours or the Jews? I asked anything to change the subject. You answered me, but not as I imagined. You spoke of spirit and truth, not ethnic pride or religious debate. Yet spirit is so wistful, unanchored, like a trinket any peddler might sell. Truth was so high and lofty and always held behind the gates gated walls of temples, handled only by priests and experts in the law, out of reach from the likes of me. I pretended I knew more than I did, aching to stay and talk, at the same time desperate to take my jug and leave before someone found us talking. Of course, I was too late. Your disciples returned, and I saw in their eyes the familiar look, the one everyone had. You knew their thoughts, too, but you didn't care. That's when you told me. Why did you tell me? 
Why would you reveal yourself to me? Of all the people in Judea and Samaria, why would I be the one? I am the Messiah, you said. And the way you said it, every syllable was wrapped with compassion. Suddenly, faint memories of my father's love seemed to wrap around your words, making them safe and familiar to me. I believed you. I trusted you because you knew me. Not what I had done or become or all that was said about me. I dropped my jug and I ran like I had not run since I was a girl in the dusty streets. I ran not away from the people who hated me, but I ran to them. To the ones who scoffed at the sight of me and the ones who wanted me in secret, I ran right into the center of our village. And to anyone who would listen, I told them about you. I knew they wouldn't believe me. Who would trust a woman like me? You. You trust in me with your very self, your deepest identity. You trusted me with your father's secrets, and you trusted that in the depths of my being was my voice, my wholeness, and an irreplaceable hope that only you could call forth. Days later, after the whole village had come out to see you, I realized I had left my jug at the well. That symbol of shame and loneliness that carrier of a life alone and broken, that noonday companion, I just left it there. I guess you were right. You really did have water I didn't know about. But I have tasted it, Lord, and this heart, once so dry and barren, thirsts no more. Jesus comes into the margins of society, goes after those of us who feel like we don't belong. Rick McKinley, in his book, the one who wrote that monologue, wrote a book called Jesus in the Margins, Finding God in the Places We Ignore. And in his book, he writes this to describe when we talk about marginalized people and the margins of life, this is how he describes the margins. Margins are those clear spaces along the edge of this page that keep the words from spilling off. And obviously, you'd be looking at his book while you're reading that. Every book has them. You might jot notes in the margins, but for the most part, they, ha they go unnoticed. They don't represent the book, and they don't define its message. They're simply there. Now listen, society, our world, our culture has margins just like this page does. They're places occupied by people who, don't, who go unnoticed. Misfits who seldom figure in when the mainline world defines and esteems itself. But they're there. The margins where I find people like me, so many times it seems, the rest of the world is ahead of me. They've created a mainstream life that mostly flows onward without me. And in some ways, we probably have all felt, in one way, shape, or form, like marginalized people. But I would also suggest this to us this morning. We have probably all also contributed, intentionally or unintentionally, to making other people feel isolated or marginalized. Because one of the things that we come into this life with is what I would call our frameworks of the way that we base reality based on our ethnicity, our background, the kind of church we grew up, our political standpoint. And so these are the frameworks which we use to determine who is out of our framework and who is with inside of our framework. And we contribute intentionally, unintentionally, to making other people feel outside, depending on the side of the tracks perhaps you grew up on, and I always seemed to be on the wrong side of them as a young man. Um, but these lines of delineation, Jesus comes on the scene to crash through hundreds of years of elitism and sexism and racism and religiosity. And he knocks down the boundaries and says, I'm here at noon with a woman with a bad reputation who's a Samaritan. Almost to say to us, I'm after everybody. I've come for everyone. There's no one out of my reach. Name your framework. Everyone outside of that, Jesus says, I'm for them too. He's not just for us. He's for them, whoever them are. I have my framework, my gold standard of who belongs 
And I have my other people that I think, oh, I'm in a, they're, they're outside of, they vote differently than I do. I'm not comfortable around them. They, they look differently than I do. They are different than me. And Jesus says, I am for them too. So to, to whomever there is in our life that we would consider the people that are outside of the, 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 the lines that we have drawn in our life, just know this, Jesus is for them too. And, and Jesus is calling us as a church, I believe, to go into the margins and to reach out into those places. Ephesians chapter 2, listen to what Paul says about these um, walls that Jesus has come to break down and tear down. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes this, Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles, which is all of us by birth, unless you're full-blooded Jew, and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body of, by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, talk about being outside, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose, now this is great, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. If you ever wonder what Jesus is trying to do in the world, he's trying to bring all people to himself. And that means the people you understand and the people that you do not understand. The wall of delineation, can I get an amen to that? The wall of delineation has been broken down through the blood of Christ, and all are welcome. And Jesus identifies with the marginalized, and he's come down to bust all the barriers that keep people away from him and each other. There are several barriers, I'll mention four, that just in this little story, Jesus knocks down walls. You can almost hear the walls cracking in this story narrative. And if you listen to what Alyssa read, you, you just hear like, the, 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 the situation that this woman was in, and you see Jesus coming right in, boldly so sitting with her, talking with her, saving her, offering her water, living water. Jesus crosses, first of all, racial lines. Now, understand on Jesus' travel map, if you're looking at a map, Jesus is in Judea, and he's headed north towards Galilee. And most pious Jews would not go through Samaria. That's the shortest route. It makes the most sense. It's the best with your time economy to go from Judea to the northern area there in Galilee to cut right through Samaria, the road through Samaria. But most pious Jews, because of their hatred and animosity toward the Samaritans, would go around. They take the long way around. But not Jesus. Jesus said, I have to go through Samaria. He had somebody in mind that he had to see. He was making a statement. He was saying... I'm not a racist. He was saying, I love the Samaritan. I love the other. I'm here for everybody. And in that, he even shocks his own disciples because they're surprised when they find him at a well talking to a woman from Samaria. And so Jesus breaks down racial barriers um, and, and brings his disciples into places that would make them uncomfortable. You know, Jesus is always about pushing us beyond where we're comfortable. If you want to be a Christian, you are going to be pushed further than you think you want to go. And, and I believe as a church, Emmaus, this is a time, this is a season where I believe God is wanting to call us beyond, push our boundaries, call us beyond where we're comfortable. To be disciples of Jesus is to follow him into Samaria. And Jesus goes there and leads his disciples in that way. But notice he also doesn't just knock down the racial lines, but he knocks down gender lines. Typically, a rabbi in the first century would not directly address a woman. If a woman came to a first century rabbi and had a question and wanted a dialogue, he would always say, woman, go call your husband. Now you would say, but that's exactly what Jesus did, according to true rabbinical form. But you remember, Jesus the one who struck up the conversation, and she goes, you're not a very good Jew. You shouldn't be talking to me. I'm a woman. It's noon. I'm a Samaritan. All of those, you shouldn't be talking to me. Jesus only says, woman, call your husband, after the dialogue has begun so that he can awaken within her her need. 
because he knows she doesn't have a husband at that moment. That she's living outside of the covenant of marriage. Jesus knows that because she even perceives after he calls it, calls it out, you've been married five times, you're living with someone right now, that live-in boyfriend, not your husband, she says, you're a prophet. Jesus knew this woman's plight before she even spoke it, so he's provoking for her a need, and then he comes in and fills that space, has her spiritual covering, and offers her eternal life through the living water that he promised through the Holy Spirit. So now Jesus is breaking down gender lines. You know, Jesus actually did a lot for the cause of women. If you read the Gospels with first century lenses, you realize that um, there were no other rabbis doing what Jesus did. He had women disciples, women who followed him. Disciples were always male. But when Jesus comes on the scene, he welcomes in the women. Women follow him. Women are the ones who testify about him. The first witnesses of the empty tomb were female. In that day, a woman's testimony was not even admissible in court. But Jesus says, you will know about the resurrection before any of the dudes. So Jesus does big things for the cause of women. Especially if you read your gospel the Gospels with first century lenses, you'll see how incredibly risky and misunderstood Jesus' behavior was, especially towards the other gender, the females. And Jesus does this with this woman. And Paul the Apostle would later take this same idea and talk about knocking down walls. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, we know this well. There is neither Jew or Gentile, racial boundaries abolished, neither slave or free, socioeconomic boundaries abolished. There is neither male or female, for you are all what? One in Christ Jesus. Racial walls, racial barriers, knocked down, gender barriers, knocked down. And then Jesus crosses religious lines. Now, this is one that's particularly difficult for Christians, conservative Christians, because we hold these truths that we believe about the gospel to be exclusive. Um, but Jesus comes into this situation and talks to a woman of another or alternative religion. We could get into the way the Samaritans worship versus the Jews. We don't have time for that. But, but just essentially, Jesus steps into this woman's life, and she is of a different religion, if you would. And he begins to touch a sore spot in her life, her relationship with men, her rejection by a patriarchal, male-dominated, misogynistic society. Jesus begins to touch the pain of men in her life. Now, I'm just going to say this because there are probably a lot of women in here who have pain from men. The rejection, the abuse, your father, a boyfriend, an ex-husband. And Jesus knows the pain that men can cause in the lives of women. And I believe that Jesus has deep compassion and, and, and wants to heal those spaces in our lives. He understands where this woman's coming from. And notice what this woman does, though. He begins to touch something very close and deep. Have you ever had somebody that, that is just that one friend of yours that can cut right to the chase? And you'll just be kind of like, you know, beating around the bush all the time in a conversation, and they'll just go, no, this is an issue. This is what Jesus does. He gets right to the heart of the matter. And what does she do? She does a theological dodge. She goes, well, let's talk theology for a second. Um, my, the, the Samaritans say we should worship on this mountain, but you Jews say it's a mountain in Jerusalem. And, and that's often what we do when we get uncomfortable, when people start touching on personal areas. We're, we're just going to start talking about the weather or the Super Bowl or um, the economy or our current president or whatever. You see what's going on in North Korea? And I love what Jesus does when she tries to get theological with him. He essentially says, it doesn't matter. That theological point doesn't matter. You know what matters? Not where you worship, but the heart of worship. You must worship me in spirit and in truth. Doesn't matter what mountain. One day, neither one of these mountains. And, and that often is the, the plight of the church, is that we care more about the mountain that you're on than the, the heart of worship that you bring to the table. And so the church becomes this really odd entity that fights within itself and is this mountain or that mountain. And Jesus says, doesn't matter. Spirit and truth matters. That's who the Father is seeking. You know what Jesus is up into the world right now? What he's doing in the world right now is so fantastic. He is crossing boundaries today that maybe you're not even aware of. But there's a documentary I would highly recommend that you take a look at 
um, called More Than Dreams. And it is basically the story of what God is doing in Africa and Asia and, uh, and other parts of the world. Um, closed countries, closed Muslim countries in the Middle East even. Where Jesus is coming to Muslim people and they're being converted through dreams and visions that they're having. And it's well documented. Um, and since 2003, as the story started to come to light in these closed countries, there have, there's a film crew that's actually gone out to document the, the cases of Jesus appearing. to. I watched one of them yesterday to Muslim men and women in closed countries. Uh, it's called More Than Dreams. I recommend you take a look at it. Um, and it... And it'll really inspire you to remind you of what Jesus is doing while we're over here arguing about Calvinism and Arminianism and baptism and communion. Jesus is going into Muslim countries and saving people. I'm like, dude, I don't, I, that's what I want to be about. I don't care about your dumb doctrinal com. I mean, I get doctrine matters, but not that much. Worship in spirit and in truth. Not what mountain do you worship on, but to whom are you worshiping? And Jesus is saying, hey guys, this is where I'm going. I'm going to like, I'm going to the other. I'm going to the Muslims. I'm going to communist China. I'm going to, I'm going to the gay and lesbians. I'm, I'm going to the people that you're like, I don't know how to interact with that race or that religion or that gender or, or whatever. And Jesus is saying, none of those things scare me. If anything, it attracts Jesus. He's attracted to the marginalized people groups. And may God do that in us, in me. If there are people that are the other to me that I'm steering clear of, I'm asking God to open up my heart and my mind to say, Jesus, I would go with you there to the Samaritan, to the well at noontime. While the church divides over all these silly secondary issues, I say, let us be a church that worships in spirit and truth and follows Jesus into Samaria. But, but another barrier, the fourth and final that Jesus crosses that I think is probably more personal to us is Jesus crosses barriers from our past. Where we've come from. Things we've done. How we've been broken. Jesus has a way of stepping right into the uncomfortable places in our life. He finds you in the margins of life. And I know there are people here this morning that are living with secrets, that have pain they don't know how to talk about because of past brokenness. And so you go to the well at noon. You know why she was at the well at noon? Because there's no one else going to be there. She had to hide because of her shame. And I know that Jesus wants to go to the places that you're uncomfortable with. Jesus knows your hiding spot. And some of us are good at hiding. Even if you're an extrovert, if you're living with pain, you have a hiding spot. That other bowl of ice cream that you self-medicate with. The binge-watching Netflix. The being alone. And some of our addictions are even more dire. Addictions to sex, to self-medicate. Addictions to alcohol, to self-medicate. Trying to run from the shame and hurt of those things that are in our lives that we're afraid to face. And we don't know what Jesus even thinks about them. Though we probably have figured out he's pretty compassionate. We're still not ready to come undone before him. And so we go to the noon, the well at noon. The wonderful thing about Jesus is he doesn't just call you out. He comes to you. There are times when Jesus will call you out and call you out from darkness. There's, there's times also when Jesus will enter your darkness with you. Well, he will, he will sit at that well with you. And you will recognize, Jesus, you just don't belong here. And Jesus would say, I have to go to Samaria. I have somebody I have to sit with because they're at their hiding place again. They're doing that thing they do when they don't know how to deal with the darkness inside. And I know there are people in our church, some of you have disclosed that, some of you um, 
have yet to talk about the areas in your life where you just feel like you're in the margins. And, and for whatever reason that you feel that way, there's also things you do to manage that. And Jesus says, those are the places I come to. There are places you think that you meet the Lord. Church, Bible study, prayer. There are also places when you go to those places, if you're drinking too much, you're involved in sexual immorality, if you're, if you're self-medicating through food, there are places where you think, I don't think Jesus is there with me. And I would, I would, I would challenge that. I would say, he might be there with you in, in ways that are more profound than you even realize. There are places you think you leave the Lord, which God never leaves. He actually comes to sit with you at those painful places. He meets you at your hiding spots. And Jesus will cross every barrier that man makes and call every one of his followers into those places as well to stretch us beyond all of the boundaries that we have set up for ourselves. He comes across your boundary and he calls you to come across other people's boundaries. And so my prayer for us this morning is that we would follow the example of the Lord who again, verse 4, it says, I love this. It's a simple narrative comment, but I think it's important. He had to go through Samaria. He had to go. No, he didn't. The pious Jews didn't do this. Religious people didn't do this. But Jesus said, I'm going to make a statement right now that's going to bother a lot of people. I have to go through Samaria. And if you're his disciple, you have two choices. You either follow him or you don't. If you see Jesus going somewhere that makes you uncomfortable, he goes to the gay community, he goes to a, a different race or gender or religion than, than you would, that, that's outside of your framework. But Jesus is saying, I have to go through Samaria, meaning, come on, you're coming with me. I'm uncomfortable with that. I don't care. That's where you need to go. Followers of Jesus go where, go where Jesus goes. And so my prayer for us this morning is just simply two things. Number one, that Jesus would find us in the margins we live in and bring us out. And this process, for those of you who identify with this woman, this process begins by identifying the well that you frequent at noontime. And one of the ways that I have found for me that Jesus calls me out is that when I have to intentionally create spaces that he can speak into, and there are a couple of practices that for me have been really life-giving. Um, the examine practice has been really helpful. It's that daily sort of end of the day coming back to God. I tend to do that examine practice in the morning. Um, the other that has been really helpful has just been sitting in silence with the Lord. I have a place in my house that I like um, where if I'm up early enough, I, I won't be bothered. Because I have four kids and a big dog, you know. So it can be a bothersome household in the most wonderful way. Um, so, But I sit at this, this particular chair and I have this French press cup of coffee and my Bible, and, and, and for the first little bit, I literally will just try to enjoy the silence of a morning. Just to be like the beauty of silence. And, and it's in those places where God um, has access to my heart. For some of us, we just don't give God time. That's why I think Tuesday mornings are helpful. That's why we're doing this at Ron's house. We could have just quit and said, oh, well, we don't have an office anymore. We said, no, we have to do this. Because there's something about sitting before the Lord just being like, God, you have access to me right now. And, and I've heard some pretty important things at Ron's house, at the office, and in my own space when I've just given God some time. Identifying those places where you're broken is important. And letting Jesus go, you've had five husbands. You're living with somebody. I know you. I love you, but I know. I'm aware of what's going on in your life. But eventually you're going to have to Get some other people involved. People that you can talk honestly with. People that will walk alongside of you. This is not to do alone. That's why we're going to continue to point people towards the 423 men's group. If there is a man here who is dealing with addictions to sexuality or sexual things, there is a group of men that are getting together in confidence, confronting the broken places in their life. And we want to be a church that isn't afraid of the hard stuff. But you're going to need people around you eventually. 
and going to, to, to groups where there's, there, there's, there's an honesty and an openness and a confidentiality is, is, is very, very important. That's my prayer for us, that we would see God deal with those areas where we live in the margins. And then secondly, that Jesus would lead us beyond the barriers to people who live in the margins. That we would be a reaching church, a searching church, a, a people that go beyond what's comfortable for us into places that are beyond cultural frameworks and social frameworks that we have to knock down. So my question for you this morning is this. You have to be honest with yourself. Who makes you uncomfortable? Other races? Other religions? Other genders? Gay people? Lesbians? Transgender? That is the issue for this generation. My kids, the next generation, are going to be dealing with transgender, gay, lesbian all the time. It's in our face. The church has to learn how to talk about this. There are people, though, that, that are the other. Are you afraid of Republicans? Are you afraid of Democrats? Progressives? Liberals? Jesus would say, I'm calling you into that space. Because that's where I am. Maybe that's where the harvest is. And I would just challenge us as a community and as individuals to say, being able to identify, Lord, who are the people that I'm uncomfortable around? Am I uncomfortable around rich people or poor people? Our journey with Jesus is one that he says, I have to go through Samaria and you've got to come with me. I'm not going the long way around anymore. I'm going to choose to confront these uncomfortable issues. And, and that is my prayer as we go forward as a church and as individuals that, that we would be the kind of church that says if Jesus has taken us there, even if it's uncomfortable, we'll go. And we all have people and people groups that we don't understand that make us uncomfortable. I do. I'm sure you do. And it may be God saying, that's where your harvest is. Those are the people that I want to reach and I want to use you in that capacity. You know, it's interesting. I was talking to Brian Gower about this because... He uh, really loves talking about community development. If you've ever had coffee or whatever, you're going to end up talking about community development um, with Brian. Um, and one of the things that um, I've been reminded of, um, this wouldn't be true in the case of Jesus, but it would be in the, the true in, in our case. Um, often I can approach going to the other, crossing barriers, going into the margins, as I am the hero with the cape on, with the big S on my shirt, and I'm coming to bring you poor different people the goodness that I have. I'm always the one on the other side of the table with the food box, so to speak. But uh, Brian's been reminding me that this is an important aspect of community, is that when you finally go beyond what, where you're comfortable into the other, realizing that there's something for you there every bit as much as there's something that you're bringing. You are not just the bringer of good, you are the receiver of good. So I, there's a book I'm, I'm going to order by Preston Sprinkle. And it's about this issue of homosexuality in the church and the Bible. Um, and one thing he said as he was doing his research um, was that he had determined that he was going to do two things. He was going to spend 50% of his time studying, researching, and 50% of his time interacting with the LGBTQ community. Now, the book is not a, a gay-affirming book. He stands on the biblical doctrine that God had a design for marriage that was male and female. But... He also writes a book that has some empathy in it. I don't need to read another book about people that don't have empathy for the other that they're writing about. And so that to say, I think there is this place, this interplay where we have something to learn and receive from people that we go. When we go into Samaria, you're going to get as much out of the Samaritan experience as the people that you go to are. We're not the heroes of the story. There is one hero in the story. His name is Jesus. You follow him into Samaria. And he brings you into Samaria because he's like, I got something to teach you. You're a bigot. You're a racist. You have issues with people that are different than you. You have isolated yourself. You're not really living as missional as you could. So I'm going to teach you in Samaria something that's going to surprise you because his disciples come and say, look at Jesus is at the well with a woman in Samaria. What is it? What's going on here? 
And, and, and that was the point of their learning. And then Jesus says, and this is a place of harvest. We'll talk about that next week. So may we follow the way of Jesus whenever and wherever he goes to reach whomever he will. Whosoever will may come to Jesus, whoever they are, whatever their skin color, whatever their background, whatever their religion, whatever. Jesus is saying, I've come to sit by your well and to call you into eternal life. Amen. Father, thank you for the way of your son, the way that he teaches us how to live better. Show each of us where we are hiding from you in areas where we feel marginalized. But also, Father, open our eyes to the areas where we have excluded some because we thought they're too different than us. They're too other. Father, show us how to be more loving, more welcoming, more pursuing. We have something to learn, Lord. And I just pray for every man and woman that's here this, this morning and that made it to church on Daylight Savings, that they would recognize that in their path, you have put people who are different than them. People who would be easy to avoid or ignore because they're different. But I pray that you would right now be putting situations and circumstances on each of our hearts that in our workplace or in our neighborhood, the places you've already put us, that we recognize there are people in my environment that I have hesitated to try to build community with, that we'd be willing to cross over those boundaries with you, that we'd be willing to listen and to grow and to learn and to love. God, save Samaritans. Help us in our own woman at the wellness to be reached out to, to have an experience with you that we can then translate to others. Thank you that you're this kind of God, that you would reach beyond what we thought was even possible and keep saving and redeeming more. As we come now to your table to eat and drink, I pray that you would infuse our hearts with hope, that we would see the gospel for all people, for all nations, for people of every race and color and struggle and background, that God, you are there for the world. You've come to save. And we want to be part of that. So we're going to worship as we do. And then we're going to take some time to eat and drink body and blood of Jesus. But just as you're headed to the communion table, I want you to put these two questions before the Lord. Is there an area in your life where you've been hiding? Do you have a well at noon? Are there broken things that Jesus wants to enter into your life? And then secondly, are there people that make you uncomfortable? Maybe they're in your life right now and Jesus put them there so that you could pursue after the other, that you would go into Samaria. So as we go to this very pinnacle of the faith, the communion table, the body and blood of Jesus, may the Lord just convict our hearts. Speak to our hearts on these things.